evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My guest today is Dave Cullen, the author of Columbine and the recently published Parkland, Birth of a Movement, an account of the student-led political movement growing out of the 2018 school shooting in Parkland, Florida. Dave is here in Winston-Salem for this year's Bookmarks Festival of Books and Authors. Dave, welcome to Winston-Salem, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. Hi, and it like literally is, I'm like sitting here and saying, <coughs> excuse me, jealous, because I'm like sprawled out on your like very comfy couch. It is kind of like little nook. Uh, that's right on the edge of this woods, and it's just like, I've just been thinking like, oh, I could have... So I just moved to Brooklyn from Manhattan from Hell's Kitchen, which is like city country to me, yeah, and it's yeah. like, I have a balcony, and I like have trees out, and it feels so... And as soon as I got here, I was sort of like, we pulled up like, maybe I should move here. Like, <laughs> but really, and I was like, like I could get some writing done here. But uh, yeah, this is this is just wonderful. So, so uh, for those of you listening, Dave and I have the the pleasure of having this interview at, at my home because he's here for the festival. A lot of times, I'm on the phone with people or in a hotel room. But but this is nice. It's a relaxing place to do it. Um, as a journalist, you could write about a lot of different things. Why shootings and school shootings in particular? <laughs> I know that's not a fun I question. But... I know. Oh no, I don't. Yeah, no, we're not a fun life. Uh, but... <laughs> Or part of my life. Well, first of all, you know, I'm not really first and foremost a, a, a journalist. I like, um, in fact, I never introduced myself that way. I just, and I don't think of myself, I think of myself as a writer mm-hmm. and sort of like a cross between, I don't know if this sounds pretentious or not, but I guess I don't care at this point, but like sort of between cultural anthropologist and journalist. And if I had to put like closer to the anthropologist side, so I, um, yeah, I'm trying to do... Actually, like, Laurie Anderson, uh, the great performance artist, yeah, and just yeah. amazing. Um, she has a spoken word thing where she says um, something like, uh, actually, my main job is spy. And when I heard <laughs> that, I was like, wow, cultural spy, that's what I do. But, um, so anyway, so then I sort of got, yeah, locked into this 20 years of murder. Um, just by chance, I lived in, I lived in Denver, and... Mm-hmm. Um, I sat down for lunch um, one day with the local news where uh, the story was just breaking. They didn't even think there were injuries yet. I'd never heard of this Columbine place. And I got my, and just in case, I called an editor I'd worked with one time at Salon um, in San Francisco and said, oh, it's probably nothing. I apologize. Like, oh, I'm sorry to bother you. I'm sure it's nothing, but in case it is, I'm going to be out of this thing. I'm going to try to find this school. And I drove out there and my life changed. Yeah. Usually, I ask our authors, you know, tell us what your book is about. Your book has one, a one-word title, and yet immediately we look at that title and we have a pretty good idea what it's about. Yeah, you know, yes and no. You know, in some ways, I wonder if we mistitled this book, or should have had the subtitle on the cover. Yeah. Because, and partly because of Columbine. Um, because Columbine people do correctly guess what it's about. With Parkland, um, I think we've always... Uh, they make the wrong assumption because they assume it's going to be like uh, Columbine, which was kind of trying to be many facets of all of a, all of that horrible event. And yeah, yeah. half of it's about the killers leading up why they did it and half about it's the survivors 
And Parkland uh, is almost none of either of those things. Yeah. And um, the subtitle is Birth of a Movement. That's what it's about. It's all about the response. Yeah. And so it's a completely different take. And I actually had some people, um, I guess I could go, well, I thought my most idiotic review, and it was <laughs> in the New York Times, um, basically she loved Columbine and was really pissed off and basically wrote a review of like, how dare he not write Columbine the sequel? Huh. It was sort of like my take. I'm like, okay. Um, like, I already wrote that book. Like, yeah, if you want, yeah. like, um, and you know, and if somebody wants to do that on Parkland or, you know, somebody did it on Newtown and, uh, great. But like, I don't feel the need for that again. And, um, and I thought there was a really, a much more interesting story. In fact, yeah. you know, I went down to Parkland, um, to cover it for Vanity Fair, um, starting the first weekend. I wasn't intending to write a book, but I was just fascinated by these kids and like, kept getting struck by like I didn't know that I didn't like and I don't think anybody knows about this and I would talk to friends or other journalists and do you know about this like about David Hogg or Jackie Corner have you heard of Jackie Corner like telling them stories about you know what this was really taking what what was happening behind the scenes scenes that were amazing I'm like yeah there's a there's a book of like um yeah, I think of an entire book, hopefully, that will surprise you that you yeah, didn't know yeah. about these people. I mean, in some ways, I've, I felt like this is a book about, a handbook of how to start a political movement. Uh, and, yeah. and so many kids who are reading it are taking it that way, which yeah. is really kind of That's wonderful cool. yeah. and, and gratifying. And by the way, uh, my favorite thing about that and about the way that some kids react to is like, it's a handbook of um, how to do it. And also, um, I mean, this is probably obvious in general, but you still, like, that That Emma Gonzalez had shitty days, too, and breakdowns, and so did David Hogg, and, like, uh, failures. I mean, it's almost this trut thing of, like, oh, everybody gets knocked down and you get back up, but it's, anybody can say that or think that, but then to see, you know, people who are heroes to this yeah. generation falling down and, um, and breaking down and crying and um, having this really... You know, or panic attacks because somebody, you know, Jackie Corn, one of the leaders, you know, uh, first day back in school, um, a car rolled over like a water bottle yeah. and created, you know, a huge loud noise that she's like, didn't sound anything like a gunshot, but just any kind of like bang. And like, like I think there's a real power in seeing, um, you know, that are humans like, oh, uh, you know, because... One of the things, as I went around the country last year, following the kids around the country, also, in effect, I was like meeting with all these other young activists around mm -hmm. the country who were kind of, um, they kind of wanted to know two things when they met these kids. It's like, how do I do this? And like, uh, and almost like, how am I worthy? Or like, you know, like, I can't do this. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like, um, and the second thing is probably the bigger part is having the confidence, the belief yeah. in themselves. And I think... Um, the biggest thing the book can do for them is make them human and realize like, oh, Emma Gonzalez isn't Joan of Arc. You know, she's not a superhero. She's just, you know, a high school kid. And like, maybe I can organize this thing in my high school. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah, that you don't have to be like, have a superpower to do it. So you, you were, you were there on the ground very early on and you were with these kids early on, even sometimes in meetings where... They weren't allowing their own parents to get in there. How did you develop that trust and also develop it in such a way so that they didn't feel like you were using them and honestly vice versa? 
Yep. You know, some of the things are just so simple. Um, show up, keep coming back, don't be a dick. Um, and I hate to say, I like reporters for the most part, but in the heat of like, like we can get dickish sometimes. Yes. Um, well, you know, and I think there's another big one too. Um, I never treated like them, them like children. And I didn't think of them like children. Yeah. I just engaged with them as adults and I didn't like, um, but I think the single biggest thing, so like my second day down there, um, when they had this big event to Tallahassee where they like Jackie Corn in less than a week, or she's kind of the hero of the book, yeah. um, who you've probably never heard of, but you should, she's kind of running the show. Um, it organized these three busloads of 100 kids, all survivors who just lived through this, to go up to Tallahassee. And um, and it was a huge media event. Um, and, you know, in the pack, and as I'm in the pack, I freaking hate pack journalism. And just all these feelings of like, ugh, you can't get access, you can't get near, there's a million people. And also feeling like, how am I going to write a, any different story than all these other people? Why do I need to be here? But at this time, because I'd been through it in Columbine, I just, as I heard the, that naysayer voice in my head is like, well, I know. I'm just going to, a week from now or two weeks from like, when everybody else is gone, I'm going to still be here. Yeah. And these kids, um, sources always respect that. It's like, oh, you're still here. You know, you're not just parachuting in. You're staying with us. Um, you know, there's another key, th a lot of things that, like, but there's a lot of things that are a version of don't be a dick, but um, have compassion. But I think one of the single biggest things I did is I had talked to Jackie and David Hogg, what they were in Cameron Caskey's living room on that Sunday right after they did Meet the Press. Um, and so I kind of met her over the phone, so she knew I was coming and I was going to come to her organizational meeting. Well, that was too, was like before the Tallahassee thing, I said, do you have any meetings or organizing? I want to go to that. And she was like, oh, well, we got this meeting with students and, you know, parents all were like, it's going to be really boring. I'm like, oh, I definitely want to go to this. And she's like, no, no, it's going to be like, permission slips and stuff. I'm like, I definitely yeah. want to go. Like, I want to go to the boring stuff to see how you're doing this. Not yeah. just like, oh, here they are, those steps of the Capitol. Like, it's a magical, you know, they just appeared here. I want to know behind the scenes. Um, so showing up there, and there were almost no press there. So, like, there, I didn't intend it this way, but there's a certain bond you start to develop with the press and, like, all the different kids, too, who've been so, I mean, Tallahassee's like, he was, oh, that's that guy. He was actually our meeting yesterday. Yeah. Like, coming to the things, almost like doing your homework. But here, I think, is the bigger thing. Um, I really needed an interview with Jackie uh, during this or before. And um, at the meeting, I asked her, just like, can I, and she's like, an interview? I just, I just don't have time. And um, I can't, I'm sorry. I'm like, okay. Um, and then I shadowed her for, like, the next 48 hours Literally, I was like, you know, a foot away from her so yeah, many times. Yeah. Never once asked her again. Because I knew, like, and she was hairy. She was running this whole thing. 17-year-old um, girl running this huge logistical operation. Um, and making sure all her kids get, like, fed and slept at home. Like, but you know, all these things. Um, and I knew when she was ready, she would, you know, let me know. And if she did, and she never did. But, um... There's a whole certain thing. Then the next time when I approached her uh, and get a phone interview from DC, like uh, she played ball. When you respect someone's distance, yeah. and there's a really bond. There's a trust there. You were asking about trust. It's um, 
you earn the trust in yeah. small ways that there's like, there's a gratitude in the trust is like oh he's like but what also really helps I guess it's uh, I guess any kind of daily journals even when you're when you do long form journalism or long form writing like a book um, man the on the ground stuff really helps yeah. because um, and it helps that I was not just doing for Vanity Fair because I did a piece for the magazine but but um, online pieces. Each piece, then they read your stuff, and they see like, we can trust him. He, he gets us also, and like you know, it's also like, not to be an asshole, but like like do good stuff, like write insightful stuff, really get inside and um, impress them with your work. Yeah, you know. So each story, they're like, oh yeah, well, like we want to do, you know. And they they would tell me too, like, um, in fact, sort of research purposes, like uh, they told me like the best profiles and the best, and you know, I won't name, but like. A couple high-profile outlets, he's, they, you know, they said, like, that was kind of crap. Don't, like, you know, read her stuff. It's like, yeah, yeah. they know who's doing well or not. So, like, also, you're developing trust that way. Sure, sure. You know, you talked about the getting the permission slips and being in the boring things. To me, that was one of the really fascinating things about oh, this. Because when we turn on the, on the TV, like you said, we see the big rally. We see the, and, and it, it does feel like it just happens magically. And it, just to get that. Just to think of these kids on this very tight time schedule having to do these mundane things like deal with a broken down bus and get permission slips for everybody. And, you know, it, it makes it, not only does it make it real, but it makes you understand how you don't have to be some superhero for, for, to do these things. You, you just have to be willing to to deal with the mundane, you know. Yeah, and I, you know, to me, it's very much like I wanted the book to be like uh, a behind the scenes, pulling the curtain back yeah, on how yeah. this happens. Yeah. Because I'm always curious too, is like, um, oh, this one, you know, it's just sort of like when, when you hear about like some, you know, some um, music sensation or something, like oh, an overnight sensation, and they'll always say the same things like overnight sensation after after yeah. ten years of yeah. like you know playing <laughs> clubs and no crowds and blah, blah blah. Like to me, that's the interesting part. In fact, as I was working on this, it occurred to me that I'd always thought, you know, maybe I would toyed with the idea of like doing a book on the civil rights movement and always, you know, thought I would do it on the obvious classical things, the I have a dream speech, the marches and blah, blah, blah. If I were doing it now, after this, I would like, I would want to do a book not on the, the 60s of like the 40s and the 50s and like... I would definitely, the number one thing when Martin Luther King went to India to meet with Gandhi. Yeah. But, and, and the freedom, like the precursor things, how did it bubble up? Like, yes, the 60s is when it all happened, but that, that's when it was hitting the stride, like only because of the ground, the spade work that had been done for decades. Yeah. And now I'm sort of fascinated, yeah, these things don't just happen. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated. I, I think... You know, I write for other readers, you know, who are like me too, are curious about the same things. Like, yeah, how did this happen? Um, but I think there's always, even whether it's fiction or nonfiction, there's always an interest in readers of the what you call the pulling back the curtain. Mm -hmm. You know, and I've done I've done that with in, in my novels too, where you know you show them a world that they're just not as familiar with, and it's something that you know about, and, and yeah, people react to that because it it's not that it takes the magic away, but it, it sort of helps you understand that you don't have to be a magician to change the world. Yeah, you know, one of the things, and there were several things in the New York Times uh, review that I actually really did like, um, that she said, um, you know, when she saw Emma Gonzalez at the March for Our Lives um, speech, and I don't know if you, who remembers, but like Emma just, she went silent yeah. for like, 
uh, the amount of time. And when it first happened, a lot of people thought she was just having a breakdown, including a lot of people in the crowd. And I didn't realize this because I was watching and like I knew the kids and like um, it didn't surprise me. But um, yeah, I mean, they cut like, yeah, so a lot of people thought she was having and then tried helping her. Um, so the reviewer was saying this and she said uh, what he didn't realize and she had some similar thoughts of what's going on. What, what I didn't realize was like Dave Cullen was watching from the tent at the same time and was not surprised because he'd seen how everything was choreographed and stage everything leading up and that this is very, very thought out and there was so much going on. And then this book is sort of like the behind the, I'm like, oh, good. Um, yeah, this is, you know, um, yeah, those powerful moments where, I mean, the it was worldwide, was transfixed. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it wasn't just, yeah, this lucky little thing or this like, like, because it was like, you know, the five weeks leading up to, um, to that, that like, um, yeah, and that's what I wanted to sort of like, how does this all happen? You read about how, um, just shifting gears for a sure, minute, yeah. about how post-traumatic stress disorder uh, can affect even people who are not directly involved in mm -hmm. an event like that. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could talk about your own sort of personal gut emotional reactions to working on Columbine and working at Parkland, how how those differed or if they differed. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, completely. Well, yeah, and, and so I have something called uh, post, uh, or secondary PTSD, mm -hmm. um, or it's also vicarious uh, traumatization. I think it's in the DSM as VT or vicarious traumatization. In fact, I have a, a, a mentor, Dr. Frank Ockberg, who created the, um, the DART Center for Trauma and Journalism at, um, at Columbia Journalism School and does fantastic work, and he helps me, and I have him vet sort of medically and psychologically most of my work. Um, and when I, so I wrote in the, in the preface to the book about how I had, had two breakdowns mm -hmm. running Columbine, seven years apart. So the second one was the scarier one, because the first year I was like, oh, okay, I'm having this breakdown, and like, wasn't that shocked by it. Then I thought it was better, and I was past it. So seven years in, yeah. when I was struck, and like, about a month, I like I wasn't getting out of bed till two or three in the afternoon, and I was like, uh, I mean, in retrospect, it scares the shit out of me. Of like, uh, yeah, I mean, that's that. Uh, I'm scared of ever going back there again. But that was so that was bad and it was scary. And um, so when I was writing about it, and I, you know, I used some phrase of like, um, you know, even someone who didn't experience um, the trauma traject directly can get this. Yeah. Um, and he said, um, could you change the word experience to witnessed? Um, mm. Because he said, you did experience it. Yeah. Um, and Dr. Ackberg, he's semi-retired now. He was actually on the committee that created PTSD as a diagnosis. Yeah. And there were all these arguments about them, of whether it should be a diagnosis and what should it include. And he said, we had one of our most um, heated arguments um, about secondary PTSD is uh, whether it exists yeah. and whether, you know, if you don't, um, and uh, some of the people said, you, you know, you have to um, witness it direct, directly. And um, Frank said, and this is true, he said, I'm a patient who's blind and who did experience a trauma, didn't see it, yeah. did not witness it. And you're saying she didn't experience it? Um, and um, you don't have to. 
And the same thing with secondary. And he said to me, like, Dave, that's what you still haven't quite come to grips with. It. You did experience Columbine directly. You didn't witness it. You weren't, uh, I mean, I was there within the hour. You know, I wasn't, yeah. I wasn't being shot at, but I went through the trauma in one step further remote, right? right? You know, right. like, not like the kids in the building. I'm not comparing that. But it's like, um, yeah, but you still, you know, still, still freaking messed up, you know? The, um, yeah, so that that's pretty bad. But I, here's something I really learned um, how much, you know, you think you know these things. And, like, I know so many people have lived through it and, and been through it. Um, I didn't realize really how much I was still, I hate to use the word suffering, but I was still kind of messed up by the, the uh, PTSD. Um until last year, I don't remember whether I put this in the book. I don't know that I, uh, the Parkland kids, I don't know if I want to use the word cured because it's not, uh, they healed me. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize quite until I was talking to Alfonso, one of the wonderful March for Our Lives kids, who I get to know quite well, uh, over Thanksgiving last year. Um, I did like a couple hours with him the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. And he was telling me about like, things he was coming to terms with that he hadn't been taking his trauma seriously enough and that he was kind of like more messed up than he had accepted. And I was like, I mean, it, we talked at length that I put some of this in, in, in the yeah. book um, and how like basically he got it when um, his dad was trying to knock some sense into it and was like, your lizard is dying. You're not cleaning his cage. You're not feeding his water. And he's like, Putin, my, like, like, my, like, people around me are suffering because I'm being a jerk. Because uh, I'm not dealing with my trauma. Yeah. And as he was going through this, I was like, and I told him, like, I'm like on the opposite track. Like, I've gotten better this year by being with you guys. Yeah. And he, like, he actually started crying. He's like, are you serious? I'm like, I am. But uh, I got better. Um, and I didn't realize how, if sick is the right word, I was until after you with them, I like got to see kind of the pre-Columbine day from like 20 years that I hadn't like yeah. met in 20 years. And so I didn't know how much sadness and gloom was still in my life until it lifted. Um, and it really did. I mean, you know, if you're still like, like I don't know, how much, maybe some of it's still there. It's like, you don't, you know, you don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but and as far as like the different experiences, so like these were night and day, like in a good um, and I was afraid, like going down there, I'm going to really fuck myself up by going, I, was, I don't know if I should do this. And um, who would have known it was the opposite? Like this was the, yeah. they were the antidote. Yeah. Um, but they made me so happy. They made me have so much hope. Part, you know, I do a lot of high school and colleges, you know, talk to them and like, kids already, already bring me up because they're so yeah. like, um, because they're so full of energy, they're such little sponges, they're just so insightful about things. Um, and so they're already giving me hope. And then all these kids, I was just like, you know, a year with them is sort of like, you know, it's cliche, but like, it does make you like, okay, the future's going to be fine because these kids and like, and it reminds you too, like, like the energy I had, like when I was 17 and like, yeah. and, and also they'll just like, the not take no, you know, it's like, like, you know, people like, oh, that's not really possible. That's not realistic. They're just... You know, we need people who aren't going to listen when people tell them, you know, like, you can't do that. And they're just like, mm, okay, get out of my way. Don't. You know, like, yeah. thank I, I God. Mean, it's, so it's, it's just amazing to, as you said, it does give you hope when you read about, especially when we have this sort of 
cliche of, you know, all millennials don't care about anything but themselves, whatever. And then you see these kids, you know, not just taking an interest, but doing things that adults don't seem to be able to pull off. I know, right? I, I wanna, the audacity. I want to dig in a little bit to, you know, some of the decisions that they made okay, sure, yeah. early on, which, which uh, you, you write that um, there were two crucial decisions they made early, early on. And one was they were going to speak with a single voice and they were going to hammer on one topic. Yep. Um, it's a pretty basic and yet brilliant blueprint for a movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why is it that adults can't, no matter what side of an aisle they're on, can't seem to to use that blueprint? That's a good question. I don't know how many, it's, a, you know, yeah, I think you're, I, maybe we get too lost in it, because I myself, I've always like, you know, when I talk about this, I talk about, until last year, you know, I talk about depression, and teen yeah. depression, and how important that is, and also the media, I also think that is really important, the media coverage of these, but, um, you know, I'm all, all I'm all about the complexities and do these different things, and like I'm always like against like oh like let's not just have simple you know solutions or one time you know that you know there's more than black and white so there's more than one way so I, I always feel like complexity is good complexity is good in a lot of things and understanding an issue but then actually like you know to like ram something through it's sort of like pick your battles choose one and like especially when you've been like your side has been flailing for years. Yeah. And it was like, like, let's get all our forces behind one thing. It's the only way something's going to happen. I guess kids tend to have a clarity about things, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We get lost in the woods after a while, and they're like, no, this way. I'm like, oh, wow, okay. So I don't have a great answer, except that, like, yeah, maybe it's the clarity of youth. Yeah, yeah. You, uh, they, they, made, they made lots of smart moves early on. They um, leveraged social media. They decided not to call out a, a particular political party or particular candidates. They're not, they were said they were going to endorse ideas and not mm-hmm. candidates. Mm-hmm. These are obviously really smart kids. Mm-hmm. Do you think they're are they reflective of this generation, or are these did there happen to be exceptional kids at this school? Both. I mean, they definitely are reflective of the generation mm-hmm. because I met so many kids at so many high schools. Yeah. Um, who are of similar minds, um, but they're extraordinary. But here's something they also did, but they're ex- there are lots of extraordinary kids all over. Um, I just saw, God, what show was she on? Uh, oh, me. I think it was on Meet the Press um, a couple weeks ago, and it was uh, a young woman from um, Minneapolis who's like one of their leaders now. Um, and I was just stunned at how articulate she was. And I'd met her like on the bus tour once or twice, but I never had a chance to sit down. I felt like I had to focus. Uh, I'm like, but I'm like, wow, I didn't realize just how like, I was just like stunned, like how sort of like brilliant and well-spoken she was. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of, I think it was Meet the Press. I think it was with Chuck Todd and she kept sort of like being a little apologetic. And he's like, no, no, you're, you're doing great. <laughs> um, um, but here's the thing is like, the reason she's there is because they decided, the kids decided to do this bus tour across America, the, the two-month uh, bus tour. And uh, they hadn't intended it as sort of like a, a talent gathering, you know, or a, a recruitment thing for talent. But one of the things they're so good about is like, 
going with the flow and going like it turned out that way. Yeah. yeah. So they had this idea that they were going to start in Chicago with the Peace March and with these kids, the Peace Warriors that they had met and worked with a bit, and like um, they were going to bring a couple of them on the bus with them for a couple days to different cities and show like you know like the different aspects of this, and that was the plan. Um, and this bus tour was really well planned out. Um, to have, like to security, they had a mental health worker on, like everything was planned out to a T. Um, and then immediately the first afternoon they broke it because like <laughs> when they were in Chicago, they had a big, you know, meeting with like the Chicago kids and like something like 10 or more of them wanted to get on the bus. And they're like, so they're like, okay. And I know like, um, so they had this barbecue and then was sort of like in, in Chicago, the neighborhood South side of Chicago. And then, um, out to the suburbs with the next event. And like, I was one of the last people at the barbecue. I interviewed David late on and then I was doing my notes. And so um, I was the last one there. I was helping people clean up because I felt guilty because we left all this garbage. I was able to clean up the tables. And I found, I don't think I put this in the book. I found this manila folder. I'm like, uh-oh, somebody needs that. <laughs> um, and so I opened it to see what it was. I didn't want to, just like, you know, if you find somebody's wall, you sure. find yeah. the, the license. Um, and it was the permission forms to go on the thing. He had just filled it out. And I knew who this was. I'd met one of them. Uh, I think I, yeah, I interviewed him. I, I had his cell phone number because he gave me. And I, I texted him like, I got your forms. Like, he was on the bus. He had like literally filled out the form <laughs> like an hour before to get on that bus to go across part of America. Yeah. Um. So like, yeah, I know they weren't just kidding us. And it was like, like I, I'm like, yeah, I'll meet you in... Um, I can't think of the name of the town, uh, Naperville, um, and I'll give it to you there. Um, but so on the fly, they decided these things, and then that worked out so successfully that each city they got to, not every city, but every few cities, when they would meet like one of the young local activists who was working with them, who was kind of brilliant, they'd be like, yeah. do you want to get on the bus? And they did, so they developed this cadre, so they... They gathered some of the best talent of this generation yeah. from around the country. No one intended it, but when it started, it was like, well, that was great. Maybe we should keep doing this. And now you've got some young woman on Meet the Press who's only there because she helped them in Milwaukee. They were like, well, I got on the bus. And now she's like one of the national leaders. Like, that's the kind of thing. Like, um, they're ready to plan the trip to death and then when some better idea comes along just grab like okay we're doing this now and alfonso and some of the kids said you know would tell me during the bus the bus tour was pretty hard on them for sure and i yeah. met them again halfway through in denver and i could tell too like by then i'd known them for months i was like are you sleeping okay on that thing um and they're like oh god um and then they, they would tell me some stories that i couldn't repeat but um you know they'd give me gossip and stuff but like but the gist was like no we're having a hard time um, this is this is hard, yeah. but um, yeah. But they were just like uh, I can't even remember my point was. Except that they were just going with the flow, and like it turned into doing different things than they anticipated. But that's what also was good about kids. Instead of like, well, here's the plan. Let's stick to. Is like, like look at what this is blossoming into. Let's let's go with that. It's, you know. So yeah. you talk about how in in the twenty years since Columbine, high school students in general have moved from often naive media consumers to pretty savvy media creators. Um, obviously that made Parkland very different, but do you think that will continue to give young people the kind of political power that they haven't had in previous generations? I think it will, probably intermittently, because I mean, sort of just like, you know, the 60s, um, when a moment presents itself, certain moments will be much more so than others, where they will rise 
um, and the moment will demand it, and someone will step up. Um, you know, so I don't know if it's like it's going to be all the time, but I think there is a sort of latent inherent power there that they have. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'd never really thought about the fact that um, yeah, their content creators, like, they're doing Instagram stories and Snapchat stories, like, every single day, they're sort of market testing their ideas and which just like in creating these little things, what works and what doesn't is like um, in a ways that we could never imagine. And like adults, you know, ridicule them for being on their phone all the day. And like, yeah. I don't know why every generation wants to like ridicule the ones before and like, oh, they're going to like, cause they're doing blah, blah, blah. Like that's a bad, it's a different thing. Yeah. Um, but I think we've been underestimating the power that they're not just on their phones. I think, oh, they're on their phone. Like we think like, oh, this closed off mine. This blow, you know, it was like wasting time or whatever. It was like, eh, maybe not reading Shakespeare, like waste, you know, but they're developing some other skill Yeah. that everybody, whatever they're doing, they're, they're learning some other kind of thing that, um, we have never, we won't understand the power until it's unleashed and like, oh. Uh, so that's, I mean, I think their entire generation is content creators. And like anything else is like, some people are like, shit at it. Some people are pretty good. And some people are very good. Yeah. And they have a group of people who are like really good at it inherently. Um, and I mean, these are people like, um, God. Well, I mean, they're creative people, mostly because most of them were Cameron's friends from the drama club. So yeah. they're like, you know, theater people and different and writers and creators but also, like, he worked with some of them on creating a satire paper at their school. And, like, it was making fun of their own paper, but, like, many of them also working on the paper at the same time. Yeah. The funniest thing about, like, Matt Deitch, who's one of our, Deitch, one of our also leaders, like, uh, the, the school came down really hard on this. Um, it was called the Cold Beak. Because the, the, the school newspaper is called the Eagle Eye, so it was called the Cold Beak yeah. to make fun of it. Um and was really angry about it afterwards and threatened basically, I think, suspension or something if they've ever found out who's doing this. And uh, Matt was like the president or vice president of like the whatever journalism honor societies. Like, so like um, he had to like read the statement threatening condemning. Like he was the one <laughs> behind it. And he's like, I'm reading this statement. Like I'm the one reading it to myself. But um, yeah, and they're like, uh, and his brother, Ryan, is also a big part of it. Um, when he was a sophomore, I believe, uh, he really kind of wanted to do improv, and there was, like, no improv group at the school. And so, uh, I guess it was the drama uh, advisor, like, why don't you start an improv group? So they started with, And that's how, actually, Cameron met Matt. Uh, so anyway, there are people who are just, like, doing all kinds of creative things, have been since they were born, who were, like, this is who did it. And so, like, the fact that they were really brilliant about media, and they've been doing it since they were three years old, yeah. okay, mm. I, I did find it as a as an old theater bum myself. I found it fascinating that several of these kids who were the, some of the key players were in the drama club. And then you also write about how theater was for some of them was part of their their healing process. Yeah, can you talk to us a little bit about that? It was their therapy. And then the, oh God, there's this weird coincidence that um, the the musical Spring Awakening, mm -hmm. which was like a, a major thing, which uh, I didn't realize like. Uh, they wrote it, the two creators of it wrote it because of Columbine, as a response to Columbine. They took an ex famous expressionist German play from the 1800s and turned it into a rock musical uh, with a very different uh, take on it, because then I yeah. you know, went back and read it. But, uh, so, um, and the protagonist, well, 
the three protagonists, two of them die. One of them in a botched uh, abortion. Um, one of them a suicide. And the third one who lives through it, the climax is in the the, um, the graveyard with them meeting their graves and uh, their ghosts and pulling out a dagger to kill himself until they talk him out of it. Um, so Cameron Caskey, who created March for Our Lives in his living room, was already cast yeah. as that person who was getting to do the graveyard scene and is about... Uh, confronting um, teen horrors, and it's all, it, everybody in it. The whole cast is teenagers. Um, so then they didn't know if they could go on, and, and several of the cast members were from uh, were from Parkland, from from uh, Douglas. Uh, so they didn't know if they could go on, and they, the kids decided they really wanted to. And um, so I went down there for the two first performances and some of the rehearsals and. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just like having a moment of. Uh, it was a really powerful thing for them, yeah. and um, and it was also an escape. Um, one of my favorite characters in the book. Um, I hope that I can call them characters. I mean, yeah. in the literary sense, even though they're humans. Uh, some of the Columbine people get angry with me about that, but these kids are fine with me calling them like. Uh, um, Daniel Duff, uh, who's a freshman. When I was talking about early on about go, doing the, the spring musical, but also, uh, yeah, it was the spring musical in his case. Um, he said, um, I was interviewing him on the phone two or three weeks after the tragedy. And um, he said, yeah, I'm just looking forward to just like uh, doing something with our friends, having fun that's like not related to politics. Yeah. And he said, uh, and then he pauses like, I'm wearing a March for Our Lives t-shirt right now. <laughs> And he's like, don't get me wrong, I love doing it, I go to it every day, but also, I need a break from it. Like, I, I, I want to be a kid again. Yeah. I think he just yeah. turned 14. He was a freshman. Um, but, yeah, they needed some of that, too. They needed just to be able to sing and dance around. And there's a, uh, <laughs> I think one of the, uh, I mean, this, this, this show swept the Tonys this year, yeah. 15 years yeah. ago or so. Uh, uh, wait, what is the song, uh, like, uh. Wait, f uh, fuck off or like? Well, there's the bitch of living is one. Yeah, is, yeah the bitch and, of living. Uh, I can't remember the other one, but yeah, um, totally fucked. Yeah, yeah, totally yeah, fucked. Yeah. Um, so the the woman who runs the the Christine Barclay who runs who's wonderful. Uh, the woman who uh, runs it's a, a non school thing. This production company that does this and uh, kind of a mentor to them and directed. Um, you know, well, they had a long meeting then when they were going to decide whether to go on with this a month after Parkland whether they were going to do this. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a gun in the show where the kid yeah. commits suicide, and yeah. so there's a shotgun blast in the show. Uh, whether they whether they could put this in, and it was a Boca, it's close. Yeah. Um, uh, whether they could do it, and they had a long meeting for like two or three hours, and then they finally decided, you know, they want to do it. She so said, okay. Until uh, so it was a very you know sort of emotional bloodletting, and she's like, uh, okay, what do you want to do now? And they're like, totally fucked. And like they really wanted to sing, uh, sing that, and um, and she's like, they just sang their heart, and just like, like well, you're fucked, all right, and blah, blah, blah. they just like needed to get that out of their system and just be like, and the play in the song is about this rebellious spirit, and they just wanted to do something rebellious, and like, um, yeah, and I get it, like being around kids, it's like you know, like everybody else is like, uh, they need some emotional bloodletting sometimes or what I don't know if that's the right uh, you know I just need to just you know my nephew's three years old and like I FaceTime yeah. with him and he's like like can we run around and yell 
And like, you know, yeah. he just like wants to yow. Um, they just need to get out of their system. So yeah, they need yeah, to get they, some stuff out of their a, system. We have a three-year-old that we look after one day a week and he will just be this sweet little... T- and then about like every hour or so, there's about... 90 seconds of testosterone, you know, he's just like... <laughs> right, exactly, right, right. Uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing to watch. It's like a release valve. <sighs> yeah, yeah. You, um, at places, not constantly throughout the book, but at places you put yourself in the narrative. Mm-hmm. I mean, we as readers are sort of, are sort of seeing things um, not always from that journalistic distance, but sometimes directly through your eyes. Why, why did you choose to do that rather than be just sort of completely stand back and show it on a screen? Yeah, you know, in Columbine, I went the other way. I wrote myself out. And in fact, there's two or three times where I was just so like, uh, I mean, one of the big myths with Columbine is Cassie Bernal, a Christian martyr. And then this, you know, web magazine several months out broke the news that it really wasn't her. And that was me. Um, And there were a couple other times where like a reporter asked something, but like, so I wrote myself out. And I just said a magazine. And, you know, and then I said in the notes in the back of the book, like, you know, the reporter was me, so right. I wanted to like not, uh, but just get myself out of it. Um, God, I'm trying to remember now as I say this. Um, I think part of this because like, because I am sort of in the middle. Well, partly because I'm in the middle of it, but um, this I've been with this for 20 years, yeah. and um, well, it was almost the way the kids treated me is like um, sometimes they had questions for me, and. And about a month into it, I brought some books, some copies of Columbine. I'm like, I wonder if they would want Columbine. And so I, you know, to read this. And so I brought copies. And then I felt like very sort of presumptuous of like, what do you want to read my book? <laughs> and they were like, yes. And one of them was like, you wrote that? And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, I've got that in my bedroom right now out to read. It's like, you wrote that? And um, and they treated us like, and Matt was like, uh, yeah, we're using your, like a week later, it was like, we're using it sort of like our textbook on like what has happened before and like oh wow our history of like what you know now we're part of this so it's not our history is like um so they have lots of questions for me and sometimes uh and even after i met with a bunch of the moms uh on my book tour in march and they had a bunch of questions for me um but anyway um It's so, God, I don't even know why I say this without sounding cheesy or full of myself. But I'm like, I was like almost like an elder statesman or something, or mm-hmm. like to them, or like, or I don't know, like the historian of like the or something like. Yeah. I, but I felt like also to the reader, I felt like I had a similar kind of rural, role of like, this is a story about these kids and they're brand new. They weren't even alive when Columbine happened, right. and they're going for this and doing this. But they, what they lack is the some of the perspective and like the whole of like the you know and. Then they met in Colorado some of the Columbine survivors and um, actually helped put them in touch with some of them. But like I've known these people for 20 years. So I felt as the narrator, I could bridge some of that gap and I could fill in some of those. And that was a sort of a useful thing for me to do. So I was very conflicted about doing it. But my editor, who's the the, the top editor at Harper, um, has been around a long time. She's like, no, no, this is, you need to be in there. In fact, she wanted more. She's like, this is wonderful stuff, but like, I need a little, a little more adult commentary of like what's going on, reflection on this. Because yeah, yeah. like it's the kids' story; it's all about them. But like, they're also kids, and we need somebody who has been through and particularly been through this for twenty years. Um, some of your thoughts, and like, don't be hiding behind some things, and like you know, like just 
you are a person who's like been dealing with this. Like you have things to say. Like go just freaking say. Don't yeah. make some pretense about it or put this in like a third person or something. Just like because that's also not. And it's like these are my opinions. These are my perceptions of like the whole wider thing. Here's what, and also here's what I've seen twenty years ago. And oh my god, the god awful thing when like um, first of all the book. This is a book is mostly easy to read, but there are. There are a few moments that, like, like David Hogg's mom texted me, like, uh, thank you very much for being crying in the airplane. Uh, there, <laughs> uh, there are a few places that will probably make you cry, but not most of it. But there are. Um, but one, oh, my God, Tio Manny, who I just freaking adore, was uh, uh, Manuel Oliver, uh, lost his son, Joaquin, um, uh, was one of the 17 who died. And, uh, God, fuck, every one of these things, like... Uh, so every one time there's a tragedy, there's a uh, a rendezvous point. Yeah. That somebody has to set up for like where are the survivors, the families, the parents, and whatever the, the widows, the the survivors are gonna like. Um, What's well, where they discover that they're uh, right? Because first of all, it's all the injured. You know, it's, it's hundreds of thousands of people waiting to reunite with their kids and their when there's teachers or whatever. If it's a shopping, wherever it is, all the. The people and then the, the crowd dwindles, and it's always the thing, same thing as like they can do math. And in every tragedy, the media reports of the death toll comes in before you know the coroner and they finish their work of like right. knowing. So um, by the time that room has dwindled to about seventeen families, yeah, and at seventeen. People in the room are smart enough to match up that, like, gradually we're getting closer to the number that I'm hearing the TV, and that it's probably us. Yeah. And that is just like the most horrible system, except nobody's figured out a different one yet. But um, I was surprised and gratified that they had learned certain things. Like at Columbine, all the witnesses coming out, like, nobody even like had a checklist or like what, like, the police didn't even interview most of them because they didn't realize, you know, we need to like get their names, find out, and who knows what. What did you witness directly? So now at Parkland, they had a checklist as the kids got off the bus, so that they had a bus to the Marriott and had like a list of like, you know, and if you witness it directly, I think it was that you go over to here and you know somebody you debrief with an officer, and if not, you go to. Um, so they have that down, but then the rest of the system was like, how could you not have learned? Like they put everybody in a room. And then at like one or after midnight, one in the morning, they started taking them like one family at a time oh, um, to like get the news yeah. literally in the room next door so you could hear the scream through the wall. Like you couldn't have like gone further down the hall. And also they did it one at a time. Yeah. Like, so it took like hours. I mean, you could have brought 17 teams in and taken everybody to the room at once and like everybody gets to the room and not this thing of like, is probably all of us, but for the next two hours, one at a time, yeah, yeah. we're gonna hear literally hear the screams until like families themselves figure out like they went out into the hallway because you couldn't hear the screams like like, um, but just like the basic things that we haven't figured out, but like oh my god, like uh, and I get it too. Like I don't, I don't mean to be dumping on the cops because they didn't foresee this coming and they didn't see. This. I'm sure the next day they probably thought like oh my god, why couldn't we have like blah blah blah, but. I don't know. Why doesn't somebody have some like procedures in place so they can read like what this happens to you? It's like, oh, here's six things not to do. Yeah. Um, 
Anyway, so they're heart. I can't even remember, but they're heartbreaking things that freaking. Uh, you described yourself. I'm going to I'm going to move away from yeah, Parkland yeah, 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 to, okay. to end because I want to yeah. touch on a book that you haven't written yet or okay. haven't oh, completely okay. written yeah. yet. Um, but on your website, you describe yourself as a former gay army infantry <laughs> grunt, and you say you've been working for 18 years on a book about two gay soldiers, which is a book I want to read. Um, can you tell us a tiny bit about that? Sure, and it's almost 20 years now. Oh, so, um, so I did a piece in the year 2000 um, that won a Glad Media Award because it was the first time anybody got. Um, this is the height of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, who yeah. got um, active duty military to sort of like a long, in-depth piece about their lives. And we changed, we had an editor's note changing their names and yeah. identities yeah. to protect them, obviously, or they would have been kicked out immediately. Um, which, by the way, one quick, uh, I couldn't get anybody to participate, and I went through all the organizations like GLAD and HRC and so forth, um, and they're like, nobody can, it's too dangerous. Um, so I lived in Denver, in uh, Colorado Springs, 80 miles away or something is surrounded by military bases. Yeah, and I, yeah. So I drove down on a Saturday night and went to the gay bar. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. And that's how I met them. And I didn't even, um, and then they took me inside. The, really one guy took me inside its world and yeah. then introduced me to the other. So that's how it all started. Yeah. And then I spent, and also I was working on a completely different piece. And Joan Walsh, my great editor at, at, at uh, Salam then, um, a couple months in, I'm like, you know the piece I'm working on? I think I had a much bigger story, a better story of just what their lives are like. Yeah. Like an yeah. ethnographic piece, and she's like, great. Um, so I did that piece. I spent five months on it, and uh, and we called it Don't Ask, Don't Tell, Don't Fall in Love. Mm. Because, for reasons that are more complicated than I can explain, um, I thought they were going to have trouble in hiding, um, and, you know, being gay, you know, even having sex of, like, finding partners... That was really easy. They were like, oh, we can get around this policy. And like having all the sex we want, um, it was really hard to have a boyfriend. Yeah. Um, and so, so I don't fall in love. The policy was like making them, you know, sort of ironically, like like have cheap, you know, sports sex and not have a serious relationship. Yeah, yeah. But it was really, really hard um, to have a serious relationship, like to do the right thing. Yeah. Um, so, um... I wondered, I thought I would do like another installment perhaps later. I didn't think there was probably enough material in the book, but uh, they like, then there were three guys that were really interesting. Um, two of them stayed in, I won't tell you how long, for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, made careers of it. Yeah. Um, and uh, just the twists and turns that their lives took were just fascinating. And I'll still use their... I'm going to use the real names in the book, but for now I'll use the, the names we made up in the story, uh, Drake and Brett. Um, uh, Drake did a one year a one year in Iraq and one year in Afghanistan. Um, Brett did shorter tours in there, but also uh, in the Gulf War. Mm -hmm. uh, Drake was still in ROTC during the Gulf War, like really wanted to go, but he couldn't. Um, but so they, they'd been in combat, you know, through these different wars that all... America's adventures in the Middle East, they've been there. So it, I don't know how long. It's kind of a saga about like an epic about like America's adventures overseas in the Middle East too. And really, don't ask, it's before, during, and after don't ask, don't tell yeah. through their lives. Yeah. But really, the gay struggle through this one window into it. Yeah. And really kind of, you know, in a larger sense, really um, American culture over this period and how it's changed and adapted so quickly. Yeah. Um, 
But really, yeah, it, and it's two lives and uh, sort of like a much, hopefully a very intimate, personal, they're both really, really interesting guys. Um, and love stories. It's very much a love story. A, a set, they're not boyfriends. They're close friends. Uh, they had a very brief romance right there in the middle. But, um, uh, one of them, I'll tell you, has like a long, ongoing uh, relationship, and the other one struggles to maintain relationships. They both have really hard times in completely different ways. Yeah. So it's sort of two different love stories in completely different veins. Um, yeah, how it's like, what it's like to, to hide a boyfriend yeah. for a decade or more um, and live with him like your, quote, roommate. Like, why does the colonel have a roommate? Um, <laughs> so we've been following him around, literally around the world for 10 years. Um, and then the other colonel who just can't, who's a series of, like, you know, star-crossed, Loves um, for the same thing. At the heart, making their lives, uh, making this difficult. Yeah. So it's love stories. There's a lot of different things, yep. but yeah, it's 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 a world in a period through two sets of eyes, and they're you know they're also completely like Drake is also like a big lumbering like linebacker type from the South, from yeah. Tennessee, and um, and uh, Brett is a. Um, is an immigrant, a Korean immigrant uh, from uh, Queens. And it, we changed him to Filipino um, in the salon piece. I'll tell you now, he's like Korean. But the reason is because um, with the different clues, he's like, that will narrow it down to like me or like one other guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and like, so, you know, again, just like, like, uh, I, so that's where, I, that was a tough decision, but like, I w we wanted to keep him Asian. Um, yeah, but we couldn't, uh, you know, being Southern, like, that could be, like, a zillion people, so we, yeah, had, you know, yeah. we could, that was fine with Drake, but we had to be very careful. Um, in fact, when I went back to the people at SLDN, and, uh, which was the big, now it's, um, I can't think of that, uh, the, the, the sort of organization that works with, uh, gay soldiers and yeah. servicemen, um, about how to protect them, and had them read through it, and they were like, they shouldn't do this. Like, no, this is too dangerous. And uh, you should not publish the piece. Mm -hmm. And I went back to them, and I was like, I'm like, okay, they don't think I should do this. Do you guys think this is okay? And they're like, ah, fine, that's fine. And they were still nervous, but they, you know. Um, but so, yeah, we were really kind of scared. Uh, it's really interesting. Drake, like, he said, like, almost six or eight years later, when he was in station in Iraq for a year, people were still talking about, still trying to figure out who those guys okay. were. Yeah. And it was, uh, come up occasionally, like, you remember this piece about these gay guys, uh, soldiers, uh, and like, they would just play around, no, and they're like, uh, oh, I might have heard something about that. It's like, I think it was me. Um, but anyway. Well, it sounds like, uh, it sounds like a great read, and I know we'll enjoy it, when it when it comes out. We like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. Okay. You should be able Rapid to answer okay. each of them in just a few words. Short, yeah. Let's see how uh, I can do so, that. So here's a speed round. Okay. What word do you love to work into your writing? I, <laughs> I don't, but onomatopoeia. I like to oh. work out of a PA, but okay. that's the word. Okay. What, what word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Oh, uh... Oh, God, it's on the tip of my tongue. What is it? Uh... It's journals words that like don't uh, that you would never use. Uh, well, God, I can't do with an name. Well, here's my second one: lawmakers. Just okay. a new Have you ever heard somebody? There's another word. Oh, oh, maybe I'll come to it later. <laughs> I can never think of the word I want. But uh, where's your favorite place to write? 
My balcony in, in Brooklyn now, my new balcony. Where could you never write? In a noisy room, hmm. like, and including like where people look like cafes and stuff. I can't do that. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Ending the sentence with a proposition. Who told you that's a yeah, freaking yeah. rule? <laughs> um, what was the first Writ large. The phrase I had, oh. rich large. Who fucking says that? <laughs> and when I hear somebody, I, like, I have a friend who's a political analyst. I'm like, well, she's like, don't ever say that again. Because I've never heard you say that ever come out of your mouth. Like, no word should come out of your pen or your keyboard that doesn't come out of your mouth. Yeah, but yeah. anyway. What's the first book you remember reading? The Golden Stallion, I think it was called. It was a series of like uh, when I was a little boy. What are you reading now? Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, which oh, is fantastic. Yeah. And I did it. I had no idea what it was going to be. And I think I'd heard like, oh, it's not about the monster. And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, sure. But it's about the monster. Yeah. It's not about the monster. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what book would you like to have written? I don't want. Well, Anything by Nabokov. Well, it's a, his book, Conclusive Evidence, of like his, you know, his memoir, but still like, oh my God. Or, I, Anna Karenina, I read recently. Oh. I have this thing about the Russians. I, can, okay, well, like, uh, I know it's lightning rod, like, I don't understand the least, I have this weird affection for Southern writers. Mm -hmm. I'm from like Chicago, like, and I never thought, but especially with the Russians, like, 19th century, and he's, but he was born, I think, in 1899, so he yeah, sort of yeah. qualifies. But, like, uh, Tolstoy, uh, I don't understand why I feel, I'm not just saying how, like, I actually read them, and I feel this affinity. Um, That's a cool anyway, thing about I books, though. I know, right? Um, and Mary Shelley, too. It's like, she wrote this 150 years ago or oh, so. Yeah, like, yeah. like, I would write this today. But anyway, yeah. But yeah. What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? Low, well, just Kissy Book, Lolita. Well, or Anna can run yeah. We're one of those. Uh, um, and finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? A reader? Oh, you mean about my work? Yeah. Um, your book made me want to read more. Hmm. Especially, actually, when kids, and I, God, I haven't told, like, uh, I never thought I liked reading, or I never thought I liked nonfiction. Yeah. And I read your book, and now I'm reading more. I'm gobbling them. That's like, that's the. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a new community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Dave Cullen, whose book Parkland, Birth of a Movement, is available wherever books are sold. And you can get signed copies right here at Bookmarks. Dave, thanks for joining us. Thanks. All right. Inside the Writer Studio posts new shows on the 1st and 15th of every month. On the next episode, I'll be talking to another Bookmarks Festival author, Orange Prize winner Taya Obret, about her new novel, Inland. Until then, thanks for listening. And may you read with wonder and write with passion. Mm -hmm.